Amen. We're going to continue our study in the book of Colossians this morning, church. So you can go and start making your way to Colossians chapter 3. And uh, before we start reading from Colossians 3, I want to go back and read a verse with you from chapter 2. So uh, if you're already open to Colossians, we're going to be in chapter 3. But look back to Colossians chapter 2. This will sort of set the tone for what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Simple verse, but really explains in a lot of ways what Paul's trying to outline for us in this letter. Colossians 2, 6. Paul writes... As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now pause for a minute. So according to that verse, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means we have received, he's talking about faith, we have received in faith Christ Jesus the Lord. So being a Christian means I have received Jesus. That's the man from Nazareth who preached sermons and performed miracles who healed the sick and raised the dead, the one who perfectly kept every spot, every part of God's law, who lived a sinless life, the Jesus who died an atoning death on the cross, the Jesus who powerfully rose from the dead. So as Christians, we have received that Jesus. But we've received that Jesus, Paul says, as the Christ. That means this Jesus we've trusted in didn't just drop in out of the sky out of nowhere. This is the Messiah that God had been telling us he was going to send. The one in the line of David. The one who's going to sit on the throne forever. We've received Christ Jesus, the Lord. That means the Jesus that we have received in faith is the Lord. He's the one who has ultimate, absolute authority. He's not just the one who governs the stars and the galaxies, but he's the one who governs our lives. He doesn't just order the cosmos, he orders our individual worlds. And so being a Christian means I have in faith received that Jesus. Right? Paul says in Romans 10 that we have confessed with our mouth Christ Jesus the Lord and we've believed in our hearts God has raised him from the dead. That's how we became Christians. We, by grace, or through faith, we received Christ Jesus the Lord. And Paul says in Colossians 2.6, that now the Christian life is about walking in that same faith. It's about walking in faith in Jesus. In other words, the way we we live the Christian life is the same way that we became Christians. So we live the Christian life by faith. We live the Christian life trusting in Jesus, leaning into Jesus. And we live the Christian life trusting in the Lord Jesus. That means the Christian life is about submitting to Jesus' authority. He's the one who calls the shots. We're the ones who obey. He's the one who gives orders. We're the ones who follow orders. He's the one who has the wisdom. We're the ones who need the wisdom. So the Christian life is lived responsively submitting to and obeying the lordship of Jesus. So where all does that show up? And of course the answer would be everywhere including in our homes. In fact, I should probably say that differently. It shows up everywhere, especially in our homes. If, if our faith doesn't work at home, our faith doesn't work, right? And so what Paul's doing at the end of Colossians 2 is Paul is describing what, what it looks like to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ in our homes. Okay, what does it look like for a Christian household to operate under the lordship of Jesus? And you've got to understand that in the Greco-Roman mind, your household wasn't just 
parents and a child. Your household was mom, dad, children, and servants. And so that's why as Paul lays out this household code in Colossians 2, he's going to address each one of the groups that they viewed as being part of the household. He addresses moms, husbands, wives, children, and then he eventually gets to servants. Now, one of the interesting things to note in this part of the letter is Paul uses the word Lord more in this section of Colossians than he does in any other part of this letter. It's like Paul's wanting to press home that Jesus' lordship even extends into our family life. So it's not that we're Christians everywhere else and then we figure out, based on our personality test, how we think we should order our home lives. Paul wants to make the point, Jesus' lordship extends into our family life. And so last week we looked at what it looks like to live as husbands and wives under the lordship of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to see what it looks like to live as parents and children under the lordship of Jesus. Now, before we get into the details, just think about what it tells us that God gives detailed instruction about what our family life is supposed to look like. It, remind, it reminds us that family was God's idea. The reason why we tend to exist in family units is it's not because the government recommends it. It's not because culture came up with it. This is by God's design. We saw last week that marriage is by God's design. God was the one who intentionally created mankind as male and female. God was the one who said that a, a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. God was the one who said the two become one flesh. God is the one, according to Jesus in Matthew 19, who joins the husband and wife together in some mysterious way in every wedding. God is the one who does that because God designed it that way. And now, Paul's going to remind us that one of the reasons why God designed marriage was to give us an environment for bringing children into the world. Okay, so remember how it works out in Genesis. The very first command that God gives in Genesis 1 the creation mandate is, be fruitful and multiply. And then right away in Genesis 2, God describes what marriage looks like. In other words, God is explaining what the environment should look like in which children should be brought into the world. Now, recognize we're in a fallen world. We feel the curse of sin everywhere, included in our own bodies, which means our bodies don't always function the way they're supposed to. So it's not always possible in marriage for there to be offspring. But God's general plan is that one of the purposes of marriage is to have and raise kids. And I wasn't planning on mentioning this, but let me say this. This is why it's a completely anti-Christian, unbiblical view for there to be couples. There should never be a Christian couple who gets married with the idea, we're going to get married, but we don't ever want to have kids. That misses the point of what God creates marriage for. I would never, I would never do a wedding. For a couple that comes to me and says, we want to get married, but we don't ever want to have kids. It's choosing not to do that. Because one of the reasons why God created marriage was to bring children into the world. In fact, listen to Malachi 2. This is a pretty strong purpose statement. Malachi 2, verse 15. It says, but did he, that's God, did he not make them one? The one there is husband and wife. Did he not make them one? having a remnant of the Spirit, and why one? 
Answer, he seeks godly offspring. In other words, God makes a man and woman one in marriage in part so that they'll raise children. So that under normal circumstances, one of the purposes of marriage is to have and raise kids. And not just have and raise any kind of kids, but to have and raise godly kids. So that the goal of marriage, one of those goals, is to have kids who know and worship God. So last week we talked about what a marriage looks like that honors God. And this week we're going to talk about what parenting looks like that honors God. And don't miss that Paul talks about the husband-wife relationship before he talks about the parent-child relationship. That's intentional. Because marriage is the soil in which children are supposed to be raised in. Now listen, God is gracious. God's grace extends to single parent households. God can work with single moms and single dads so that they can raise kids who know and love the Lord. The church is here to be a resource for that. Nevertheless, the best soil for raising healthy kids are healthy marriages. And so once Paul describes what marriage should look like for Christians, with that background, he then describes parenting and children. So with all that said, we're in Colossians 3. We're going to be looking at two verses together today. Colossians 3, look at verses 20 and 21. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Children, obey your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, I want to think about this under two broad headings this morning. Here's the first one. Number one, I want to see God's command to children. Just look at verse 20 again. Children, obey your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, that Paul says this directly to children. And he says it in a letter that he's writing to the church in Colossae. So he's writing to this local church. They would have received this letter, and then when the church gathered together for one of their meetings, they would have read this letter out loud. And in a letter that would have been read out loud in a church gathering, Paul says something to the children in the congregation. Now that tells us something. It tells us that Paul assumed children would be in the church gathering. So the fact that Paul says something to children in the church directly tells us Paul knew that children would be there when the church gathered. So so on the one hand, parents, this is one of the reasons why we think it's good for you to have your kids with you in church gatherings. We, We have nursery for for young children but once your kids are old enough to understand it's good for you to have your kids with you in church this is why we don't do a, a children's church for fifth grade and under Paul spoke to children in this letter as if children would be there and listen this also says something to our kids the fact boys and girls the fact that Paul says something directly to you means that church services are not just for grown-ups Church services aren't just for the big people. Church services are for you too. God has something to say to kids in church. The Bible wasn't just written for adults. The Bible was written for boys and girls too. And so Paul says something specifically to children. So, boys and girls, 
What does God say to you in these verses? How can a child please God, right? Children, just like adults, you want to please God in your life. How? You're not making money, so you're not giving sacrificially to the Lord. You can't drive, so you can't go help somebody in need or deliver a meal. You don't know enough to teach a class. How are you supposed to please God with your life? Well, here's an important part of that. God commands you to obey your parents. That word obey literally means to listen under. So it's the idea of children listening under the authority of their parents. Listening to obey. So it's, it's the idea of responsive listening or submissive listening. This is how God expects kids to relate to their parents. And just to step back from that, think of how important that is. In every area of the Christian life, every sphere we live in, God has ordained roles of authority and submission. So we need to know how to submit in all sorts of different aspects of life. We're called in the Bible to submit to appropriate civil authorities. We're called in the Bible to submit to bosses. We're called in the Bible to submit to church leaders. We're called in the Bible, all of us, to submit to God. Well, where is it where we first learn what submission to authority looks like? And the answer is the first place we learn what that looks like is in the home. So a child who will not submit to parental authority is not going to suddenly wake up when they're 18 and go, you know what, I think I'll submit to my boss's authority. I think I'll submit to the government's authority. Now we first learn what that looks like in the home life. So children who will not obey and respect parents who they can see are not going to naturally submit and respect a God who they cannot see. So this is the first place where a picture of authority and submission gets established. And maybe I should back up and say this. Remember, this is children and adults. Remember that at every stage of the Christian life, one of the ways a relationship with Jesus shows up, one of the main ways a relationship with Jesus shows up, is in obedience to Jesus. John makes this point so clear several places in his epistle. Listen to 1 John 2, verse 3. John writes, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. So knowing Jesus results in a desire to keep his commandments. Following Jesus means obeying Jesus. Well, one of the clearest ways that shows up in the life of a child Okay, one of the most obvious ways that a desire to follow Jesus can show up in a child's life is by a desire to obey parents in that child's life. So one of the practical ways young people follow Jesus is by following what Jesus tells them in their relationship to their parents. And Paul says, children, obey your parents in all things. And, and I would add, obedience means, my dad made me say this so many times, it's ingrained in my mind. Obedience means doing what you're told to do, when you're told to do it, with the right attitude. Obedience means obeying the first time. Obedience doesn't mean I wait until the third time. I wait until mom's voice raises a little bit. Obedience means doing what your parents tell you to do right away. That's what God calls you to do. And he says do that in all things. That means Children don't get to decide what areas they want to obey their parents in and what areas they don't want to obey their parents in. God, in every area, calls children to obey. 
So if they tell you what you're having for lunch today, you obey. If they tell you what time to go to bed, you obey. If they tell you when to clean your room or when to do your homework, you obey. If, if you're 17 and they tell you what time to be home at night, you obey. What well, one of the ways that a lot, the life of a child honors the Lord is by obeying the authority of their parents in everything. Now, the only exception to that, boys and girls, listen to me. The only exception would be if your parents order you to do something that displeases God, you don't obey your parents. If mom and dad tell you to do something that is clearly sin in the Bible, harmful, you don't need to do it and you need to tell someone else what's going on. But in every other case, God calls you to obey your parents in everything. So, so you submit to God's authority over your life in large part by submitting to your parents' authority over your life. And Paul says that obeying your parents is well-pleasing to the Lord. So boys and girls, listen to me again. That means your little four-year-old life can please the Lord. Your seven-year-old life can please the Lord. Your 12-year-old, your 16-year-old life can please the Lord. You can glorify God in your life by obeying your parents' authority in your life. And what that tells us is, boys and girls, you don't want to just obey your parents because it's what your parents want you to do. You're called to obey your parents because it's what God wants you to do. You please God by obeying the authority that he's put in your life. And on the flip side, this means when you kick against your parents' authority, you are also kicking against God's authority. Children, obey your parents in all things. Now, mom and dad, understood in that is the idea that parents are supposed to exercise authority over the lives of their children. You're not just your child's caretaker. You are your child's authority. And you have that authority because God assigned it to you. So you're called by God to exercise authority in the life of your child, and you exercise that authority as God's representative. So God endorses your authority. So you having authority is not something you decide on. God has commissioned you to exercise authority in the lives of your children. Make sure you hear that. You don't need your children's endorsement to be their authority. God has endorsed you to be authority in the lives of your kids. Not, not just an advisor role in your kid's life, but the role of an authority in your kid's life. And you've been placed there by God. So the only question is, are you going to exercise authority in your children's life in a way that pleases God or in a way that displeases God? God. And I should say one more thing to parents. The fact that God commands children to obey also means that God expects parents to teach children to obey. Because Paul says, children, obey your parents. Well, the fact of the matter is, children need to learn how to obey before they can read those words. Before they know how to read, children, obey your parents in the Lord, they need to be learning what obedience is. And the way they learn what obedience is, is from mom and dad. So parents, we have an obligation to teach obedience 
to our children. If we, if we had neutral hearts, if we did not have fallen hearts, that would be really easy to do. If we didn't have fallen hearts, all you would need to do was give your kids instruction. Just tell them, obey, man, and immediately they'd want to obey. But we do have fallen hearts. Which means that part of teaching our children to obey means we give instruction. It means we help them see what's going on in their hearts when they disobey. It means we set clear guidelines and expectations. And it also means that God calls us to appropriately discipline our children. Listen to the way Solomon says it. This is in Proverbs 22:15. He writes, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. The idea is we all have a natural bent towards sin and destruction. And one of our goals as parents is we want to curb that natural bent. If, if your child's sin nature is allowed to run its natural course, it will end in your child's destruction. So teach them to obey. Parents. It is more important that your children learn to obey than it is that they learn to shoot a gun or shoot a basketball or play the piano or, or memorize their alphabet. All that other stuff's great, but God does not command them to start reading when they're two and a half. God doesn't command them to make the all-star team in basketball. God doesn't command them to get a, a music scholarship. God does, though, command them to obey. So make sure you make it a priority that you are going to teach your children what obedience is. I don't get to shrug my shoulders and go, uh, toddlers, uh, you know how teenagers are. No, we have to teach them obedience and we have to correct disobedience. And the earlier we start that, the better. Listen again to Proverbs. Proverbs 19, 18 says, Chasten, discipline your son while there's hope. And do not set your heart on his destruction. The idea is if we don't discipline our kids, we're aiding them in their own destruction. A child who's allowed to be disobedient and disrespectful to his or her parents is taking the first steps down a path that's going to ultimately lead in their own ruin. Listen, I, I know when your kids are young, there are so many successes that we find joy in. It's, it's encouraging when your kid makes the honor roll, and it's great to see them score the winning touchdown, and it's fantastic to see them get an award, and all, all that's great. But as they get older, all that will really matter is, are they wise or are they foolish? That Solomon keeps making that point. Whether your children are wise or foolish is what's going to determine whether your children end up bringing you tremendous joy as a parent or whether they end up bringing you immeasurable sorrow as a parent. Listen to how many times Solomon makes this point in Proverbs. Proverbs 10, 1. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Proverbs fifteen twenty. A wise son makes a father glad. But a foolish man despises his mother. Proverbs 17, 21. He who begets a scoffer does so to his sorrow. And the father of a fool has no joy. Proverbs 17, 25. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. 
Proverbs 23, 24. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. And he who begets a wise child will delight in him. Solomon is saying that in the end, all that matters is, are they wise or foolish? And by the way, you realize being foolish in the Bible doesn't mean being silly. Being foolish in the Bible means being godless. It is, Psalm says, it is a fool who says in his heart there is no God. The fool is one who, is like, who lives like there is no God, who lives like there is no accountability, who, is, who lives as if there are no moral restraints. And Solomon says that a child who grows up to live that way will bring immeasurable grief to their parents. On the other hand, a child who lives under the awareness of God, in awe of God, under the authority of God, a wise child brings tremendous joy to his parents. Make sure you get this, parents. There's no amount of success your children will have on the ball field or one day even in the boardroom that can come close to measuring up to this. There's no greater joy than to one day have adult children who are wise, who know the Lord, live under the authority of the Lord, and there's no greater sorrow than to have adult children who ignore the Lord, who live without moral restraint, who live ignoring the authority of the Lord. So make sure you make this a bigger priority than all of those other things. Having a grown son one day who gets a promotion or wins an award at work is, is great. But it will not hold a candle to having a grown son one day who makes wise decisions, who leads his family well, who lives with a clear biblical moral compass. Having, having, a, having a college age kid who excels in music or who do, does great on the ball field is fine. But it will not hold a candle to having a college age son or daughter who actually lives out their faith with courage and boldness. So parent now with that in view. And one of the fundamentals of that is you have an obligation right now to teach your children to obey. Now let me say one last thing to kids before we go on to verse 21. Boys and girls, all of our boys and girls in here look up at me. So boys and girls, God commands you to obey your mom and dad in everything. So let me ask you a question. Is that easy to do or hard to do? Do you always want to obey your mom and dad in everything? You don't. Do you know why you don't always want to obey your mom and dad in everything? It's because you have a sinful heart. We have hearts that don't naturally want to obey God. That's true for all of us. And when you feel that burden in your heart where you don't want to do what mom and dad tell you to do, it is a reminder that we're sinners. And our sin is a big deal to God. Our sin separates us from God. Our sin condemns us before God. But God loved us so much that he sent his son to pay our sin debt for us. Jesus came and he lived a life where he perfectly obeyed his father. And then he went to the cross where he suffered in our place, where all of our punishment for all of our sins was put on him instead of us. And he rose from the dead. So that now the Bible says that if we'll confess our sins, if we'll repent of our sin against God and trust in Jesus, God will forgive us. And if we'll ask him, God will 
help us. So make sure you get that. The only way you'll ever be able to obey your parents the way God tells you to is with Jesus' help. So ask Jesus for help. Make it a practice in your young life to pray and ask God for help. And as you fail God and see disobedience and sin in your life, make it a practice of confessing that to Jesus and of trusting that he's done the work for you so that we can be forgiven and accepted by God. Okay, God commands us to obey. That's the command to children. Here's the other side of it. Number two, I want to see God's caution to parents. Verse 21 now. Colossians 2.21 or 3.21, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, a general principle to start with, that's obviously applicable to both moms and dads. But who does Paul specifically address there? He specifically addresses fathers. Now, why do you think he does that? We've seen before that God has placed the father, the husband, in a leadership role in the home. Now, now, dads, listen to me. When we say that God has placed the husband in a leadership role, that doesn't just mean you get to lead in the areas that you like. Like you get to, to hold the remote and control the thermostat. God placing you in a leadership role also means that you are expected to lead the way when it comes to the teaching and discipline and raising of your children. Listen to the way Ray Steadman said it. He wrote, Mothers may enforce policy, but it is the father's task to set it and to see that his children are raised properly. There is nothing that is more dishonoring to the spirit of Christianity than the attitude adopted by many fathers. It's my job to make a living, her job to raise the children. Not in the Word of God. In the Bible, the ultimate responsibility for what a home becomes is the father's. So dads, you set the priority, uh, you set the pattern for what the priorities are in your home. Dads, it's up to you to set the tone for what discipline looks like in your home. You don't get to just be the coach and the encourager. You're also called to set the tone for discipline. You, you don't just get to check out and leave the hard work of child rearing to your wife. I'll just give you a practical example. D dads, when you are together, when it's you and your wife and your children are there, and there's something that needs to be dealt with in one of your, chil in one of your children, you need to be the one on a majority of those occasions that deals with it. It doesn't need to be up to your wife to do that work with your kids while you just do the work of teaching them to shoot and, and throw. You need to set the tone in your family of what matters. You need to set the tone in your family of what discipline. And whether you intend to or not, you are setting the tone in your family. Whether you intend to or not, you are setting the tone for your kids of what really matters in your household and what the pattern of discipline will really look like. And man, I want you to think about what's at stake in this. Think of how, how is God described in the Bible? How are we to address God as Christians? We address God as our 
Father. Isn't that what we say in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven? Well, where is it that kids learn what that means? How do kids learn what it means that we call God Father? Well, they learn that from us. But before kids have any conception of God, they know Daddy. Before they have any idea of what God is like, they know what Daddy is like. And so as they get older and they begin hearing, hey, God is a father to his people, they already have a view in their mind of what that means. They already have a picture in their minds of what it means that God is father. This is why still a lot of people struggle with that language. Martin Luther, the the great reformer, had a very stern, very harsh dad. And he talks later about how he struggled to pray the Lord's Prayer. He struggled to pray, our Father who art in heaven, because there was so much baggage tied up in his mind about what, so much harmful baggage about what a father is. We don't want it to be that way for our kids. So in a lot of ways, your relationship as a dad with your kids becomes the first lens through which they understand God. Those are enormous stakes. So Paul addresses fathers. What does he command us to do here? And balance this with verse 20. He just said, children obey your parents in everything, which means moms and dads have a tremendous amount of authority in the lives of their kids. And by the way, the Greco-Roman world in Paul's day completely agreed with that. They believed that dads had complete authority. There was a, a part of the Roman law code called the Patria Potestas. And what the Patria Potestas meant was that a dad had complete authority over his kids. So in the Roman world, a dad could sell his kids if he wanted. He could turn his kids into slaves if he wanted. He could execute his kids if he wanted with no recourse from the Roman law. There's even a a letter that's been preserved in history where there was a Roman soldier who was stationed in Alexandria and he sent a letter back home to his wife who was pregnant. And in that letter, he tells his wife that when the baby is born, if the baby is a boy, she's allowed to keep it. But if the baby born is a girl, she's to throw it out. The child's to be killed. That's, that's how they viewed a, a father's authority, that a, th- a father had complete authority. Well, Paul gives a warning. And the warning in verse 21 is, fathers, do not provoke your children. Provoke means to embitter, uh, to exasperate. The parallel passage in Ephesians 6 says, do not provoke your children to wrath. Now make sure you understand what that means. That doesn't mean that you should never do anything that might get your children angry. Because the fact of the matter is just being a parent at times is going to get them angry. There's going to be things they want to do that you say no to, and you saying no as an authority is probably going to get them mad at times. So Paul's not saying never do anything that might get a child angry. What Paul is saying, though, is don't do anything that unnecessarily inflames their hearts. We don't want to treat them in a way that makes bitterness start growing in their hearts. We don't want to fan the flame of anger and resentment. Because Paul says if we do that, our kids will become, he uses the word discouraged. It means they'll lose heart. We, we don't want to use our authority in a way in our kids' lives so that it ends, up, uh, it ends up taking all the wind out of their sails. And they become completely disheartened. 
So how might we do that? We don't want to provoke our children in this way. We don't want to make our children become disheartened. What would be some ways we might do that? Let me just give you three or four of them. One, we can do that through unrealistic expectations. You know, we can, we can set pretty high standards for our kids sometimes. We can have goals about the kind of students we want them to be and the kind of athletes we want them to be and the kind of musicians we want them to be so that we always keep the bar just out of reach. Or what they do is never quite good enough. We're always criticizing, always pushing for more so that they, they never feel like they quite measure up. And over time, that crushes disheartens children. Here's the second way. We can do it through inconsistency. That's where our kids never know what to expect out of us. Something that mattered to us yesterday all of a sudden doesn't matter to us today. Something they got disciplined for yesterday all of a sudden today they don't get disciplined for at all. Because what can happen is we can become lazy in our parenting. Meaning rather than taking the energy and the time to correct what needs to be corrected in our children's lives. We don't do anything and it builds and it builds and it builds until finally we just snap over the smallest thing. That's inconsistency because what we end up doing is we end up, we end up disciplining our kids not based on what they need. We end up disciplining our kids based on our mood. We end up disciplining our kids not based on what they need. We end up disciplining them based on our energy level at the time. So that they never know what to expect. And over time, their hearts grow resentful. Kids need to have consistent boundaries, consistent expectations, and consistent discipline. Here's another. We can dishearten them through overprotection. It, it used to be the phrase helicopter parenting that was used, right? Where you just always hover over your kids but um, Alistair Begg said that a better description of what happens today would be to call it curling parents. You know what curling is? It's that, I use this word lightly, it's that sport where they kind of slide the stone down the ice. You know what I'm talking about? And you remember there's, there's those people, if you've ever seen it, they slide that stone down the ice. And there's those people who run in front of the stones with those brushes. And they're constantly brushing in front of the, in front of the stone as it slides down the ice. And why are they doing that? They wanted to make sure that stone never hits any bumps, that everything is perfectly smoothed out for that stone. And Alistair Begg says that's what too many parents try to do. They want to make sure their kids never hit a bump, never scrape a knee, always make the team, always get the trophy, never have a failure. But their kids, they need to be allowed to take appropriate risk. That's part of life. We don't want our kids to be fearful of everything. They need to learn the principle of sowing and reaping. And if you're always there to make sure your kids never reap what they sow, how are they ever going to learn that important principle? So we can't keep our kids fenced in so tightly that they never take a step. They can never have a thought without mom and dad hovering right there. As your kids get older, they won't see that as love. They won't see that as love at all. They'll see it as cruelty. They won't appreciate it. They'll resent it. And they'll be disheartened by it. Here's another one. We can dishearten our kids through uncontrolled anger. Man, it is, it is so easy to correct our kids' bad behavior with our own bad behavior. Right? It's so easy to correct your son for yelling at his sister by yelling at your son. 
It's so easy to correct your daughter's lack of self-control by showing no self-control yourself as a parent. Or we can berate or endlessly nag until our kids' hearts start turning cold. So in short, we want to use our authority in a way that directs and constrains and motivates, but not in a way that crushes or disheartens. And parents, I'll say to you the same thing that I said to our kids a second ago. Is it easy or hard to parent this way? Is it easy to be consistent? Is it easy to always be self-controlled? It is unbelievably hard. Do you know why it's so hard? Because we're sinners too. Which means that we need Jesus every bit as much of our, as our kids do. So when the Bible says that you have authority in your kids' lives, I want you to think about what that means. So, so when you exercise authority, you're doing what God told you to do, and you're doing it under the authority of the Lord. Which means, when I misuse authority in my kids' lives, I'm sinning against the Lord. And you could just calculate my sins against my children over the years. There's enough of that that I should be condemned for, and that's just a small fraction of my sins against God. And the only reason why I don't fall into absolute despair over that is because uh, we have a Savior who took our sin and our sorrows and made them His very own. Right? The only reason why we don't lose hope is because we have a Savior who did obey the Father perfectly. And we have a Savior who, through His grace and by His work at the cross, He took the condemnation that we deserve. He took the condemnation we deserve for our sins as parents, and He took the condemnation we deserve for our sins at large. And so we keep every day, just like our kids, looking to Jesus. We keep every day, just like our kids, needing his forgiveness. We keep every day looking to Jesus and asking him to help us parent our kids in a way that might lead them down the path of wisdom. And it's, it's so appropriate that we're coming to the Lord's table this morning. Because the Lord's table reminds us, I didn't just need Jesus back then when I got converted I need Jesus today, and I need Jesus every day. And so we keep coming to the cross, and we keep coming to this Savior who was crucified on our behalf. That's where we find help in our time of need. Listen, if you've never really taken stock of your parenting, I don't know, I don't know anybody who looks back on all their parenting with their kids and doesn't have regret. Man, I wish that I handled that better. I cannot believe I lost my temper there. That was such a stupid thing to say. There's enough failure just in our parenting to leave us drowning in condemnation. And the only way there's any freedom and forgiveness for that is in Christ. And not only is there forgiveness in Christ, it's because of what Christ did that I'm not locked in to those broken ways of parenting. It's because of what Christ did that I'm not condemned to keep repeating the same things over and over again. He not only forgives, he helps. He not only forgives, he changes. The same Jesus who redeems lives, redeems homes. And he is the only help for sinful boys and girls. And he is the only help for sinful moms and dads. So we as a church keep coming back to the cross. We keep holding on to the place of forgiveness. We keep looking to the Lord for help. And we're going to do that together this morning. So I'm going to give you a little time there in your seat just to go to the Lord in prayer. Ask God that our homes would demonstrate that we are people who live under the Lordship of Christ. 
Boys and girls, pray to the Lord this morning. Confess your sins. Where you sense this rebellion in your heart against mom and dad, confess it. Confess it and look to Jesus. Thank Jesus that there's forgiveness because of what he's done for us. So trust Jesus. And moms and dads, we need to do the same. Look to the cross where there's a Savior who bled and died in your place. Look to the cross where there's a Savior who breaks the power of sin. And ask for his help. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to go to the Lord in your seat. And then I'll close this.